For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you may or may not know, pastors get some unusual phone calls from time to time. Some of them are kind of funny. Uh, For example, when I was at my previous church, the name of the church was Lord of Life. Occasionally I would answer the telephone and somebody would say, Are you the Lord of Life? And I'd say, No, but I spoke to him earlier this morning. Some of them are rather discouraging phone calls when you hear about a problem in a family. Some of them are rather heart-wrenching as people want to share some tragedy in their lives. But there is one phone call that I have gotten from time to time that actually makes me a little bit nervous. And that phone call goes this way. I visited your church last Sunday and... Now, it's what comes after the and that makes me nervous. It's what they're going to say after that. I was at your church last Sunday, and that kind of worries me. But let me ask this question. What if Jesus visited our church and he had something to say? What would Jesus say if he visited First Lutheran Church, Texarkana, Texas. Would he be impressed by what impresses other people? I mean, would he make any comments at all about this building? Would he make any mention about the size of our congregation, the membership, or how many people were in worship? Would he make any mention about the amount of money that is taken up in the tithes and offerings? Would he feel welcome in this church, or would he feel like an outsider? Now, thankfully, we don't need to look very far to find answers to those questions, because starting today, we are beginning a seven-part series on the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, because these letters in the book of Revelation are so short, and by the way, I would recommend in these next couple of weeks that you read Revelation chapters, really 1, 2, and 3, to kind of put it together. Because the letters are so short, I'm really going to call them email from Jesus. And in these seven uh, letters, our Lord pays a pastoral visit, if you will, to seven different first century local churches. If you see on the next screen, you can see a map of where all of these are located. In each case, as Jesus writes to these seven churches, he tailors a message that, that best fits that congregation at that moment in history. And these are all churches in history. They're all part of what we call Asia Minor, which is the western part of modern-day Turkey. And you can see them numbered off. Ephesus is number one. Next Sunday we'll talk about Smyrna. Then we'll talk about Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. And then finally end up with Laodicea. All seven of these churches, by the way, were struggling with persecution. All seven of these churches were struggling with the temptation to moral and spiritual compromise. Now, even though 2,000 years separate us, uh, their issues are not much different. In fact, as I read through it, as I studied, as I prepared these messages, I thought, 
wow, these could be the seven letters to churches in Texarkana. You know, starting with the Lutherans, then the Baptists, then the Pentecostals, you know, whatever, all the way down the list. And, and I hope and pray that as we go through these seven letters, we're going to see not only ourselves, but that we will also see our church in a brand new light. Now, we need this series because I think it's sometimes easy to think that the church is really good if the church is really busy. That the church is, is good if everything seems to be okay. Now, I've had plenty of time to think about this uh, because I have literally spent my entire life in the local church. I mean, from a little kid on, I mean, raised by my grandparents. What was my grandparents' job? My grandfather was the custodian at the Lutheran Church School and Parish Hall. I grew up in the church. I grew up following the pastors around. I grew up playing with the microphones. I grew up playing with the organ. I grew up practicing preaching in the church. I grew up helping clean the church and hanging around until the meetings were over. But then even as I look back on just 25 years of being a pastor of a church in Texas and in Illinois, I reflect back and I, I have a lot of really good memories. I don't have very many regrets, but I will tell you that quite often I have wondered something. I have wondered, how are we really doing? Everything looks fine at First Lutheran. Everything looks fine at Lord of Life. Everything looks fine at Trinity. Everything looks fine at Emmanuel. Everything is looking fine at even Redeemer Richland. But how are we doing, really? It's kind of hard to know the answer to that question when you're actually in the trenches. It's like they say you can't see the forest because of the trees. And so we tend to figure out how we are doing by using numbers as answers. You know, counting nickels and noses, or butts and bucks, as somebody says. I mean, how many people parked in the pew? How much payment found their way into the plate? I mean, try swinging that bunch of peas together. And, and those things, I want you to know, they actually do matter because people vote every Sunday. They vote with their pocketbook or they vote with their feet. And we measure churches that way. I go to pastor's conferences. It's how many do you run on a Sunday morning? Uh, how many you got in Sunday school? Or the guy who asked me if I was a successful pastor, and I said I thought so, and he asked me how much money I made, as if that was tied together. Now, we measure churches that way. But Jesus evidently does not. So what is Jesus looking for? If Jesus were to come to this church, what would he be looking for? These seven letters provide us with an important answer. Now, this first church that you see up there in Ephesus, the first letter goes to Ephesus. It is a major port city. You can see it right on the Aegean Sea. And in many ways, it was Asia Minor's marketplace. It was also home to, if you go to the next slide, the Temple of Artemis, otherwise known as the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Here is the place where paganism, in all of its glory, was held. I won't even go into it describing 
what sorts of things. If you want to hunt it up later and look up pictures of Diana or Artemis, God bless you. Uh, just don't have the kids around when you're looking at it. Uh, but it was, a, it was a nasty place. Three major highways, if you will, met in Ephesus, um, making it kind of a gateway to the east. It was a large cosmopolitan center, uh, and it was a place where the Apostle Paul had spent two years. Uh, he established this church, and when he left it, it was a thriving church. Later, many of you know, you read your Bibles, he wrote the New Testament letter to the Ephesians. And over the years, in fact, his first number of years, who were the pastors of this church? Pastor number one, Pastor Paul. Number two, Pastor Apollos. Three, Pastor Timothy. And their fourth pastor was Pastor John, who wrote the book of Revelation. There was no church in the entire first century that had it as well as these guys had it. You would say, what a blessed church. They literally had it all together. Wonderful people, wonderful pastors. And the letter from Jesus opens up. You listen to what Matt read before. It's a reminder that Jesus was well qualified to write to these churches. After all, in verse 1, it says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks among these seven golden lampstands. Now, I'll tell you that the seven stars are the angels. And the seven, uh, the angels of the seven churches. It's almost as if each church had its own guardian angel. The seven lampstands are those seven churches. We find that out reading back in chapter 1. Now, again, if you paid attention, you've got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2. There was a lot, of, lot to commend this church for. I mean, Jesus says, I know your good deeds. I, I've seen this stuff. This was a busy, hard-working, service-oriented church. They were eager to, to uh, serve the Lord with a calendar that was full to overflowing. This is a church that had events probably every night of the week. It had programs and meetings and a whole variety of outreaches into their community. But that's not all. Verse 2 also said they would not tolerate false teachers. They were doctrinally sound. Now, today, uh, if a pastor says that Jesus is the only way to heaven, he can be labeled as a bigot or narrow-minded. I know that to be true because I've been called that and worse. I mean, where do you get off telling us there's only one way to heaven? Well, because that's what it says in the Bible. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. Let any pastor or teacher speak out today against gay marriage, and they will almost always get in trouble. And if you read your paper in the last couple of weeks, even get fired from their churches for dare, daring to say what is consistent with God's word. Today, it's much more, what, politically correct to keep your negative views to yourself. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. These seven messages are going to be pretty direct. We're going to hammer the truth. And if you can't handle the truth... <laughs> 
I don't know what to tell you. Now, the church at Ephesus evidently did not have a problem with being politically correct. It even said they, they put false apostles and false prophets on trial. And after they tried them, they threw them out of the church. They would not tolerate people who were not biblically and doctrinally correct. They also rejected the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, who on earth were the Nicolaitans? By the way, this is not the beginning of St. Nicholas and the beginning of Christmas. These are the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans were some sort of a weird group of people in the early church that taught what was called freedom in Christ. Now, that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? Freedom in Christ. Except what it really meant was you are free to sin without any fear of punishment. These were the people who tried to infiltrate the Ephesian church and said, we want to be religiously pluralistic. Y'all come. Doesn't make any difference whether you normally worship at the temple of Artemis or Diana or what you believe. Y'all come. We can make it all work together. These are the people who wanted to hook up with all of the surrounding pagan practices. These are the ones who compromised on sexual purity. I want to read you one statement of what they believed, and you tell me whether you've heard this before or not. This is about 2,000 years old. My body is my own. I can do with it whatever I want and still be in good standing with God. You ever heard that before? I hear it all the time. For people who defend abortion rights. Still today. Hope you notice it said Jesus hated those people. That's a pretty strong word. It even said the Ephesians hated those people. As a result of persecuting those kinds of people, the church of Ephesus itself was persecuted, but it says that they didn't get weary of it. They just kept on standing up for what was right. They defended their Bible. They defended their doctrine. And as a result, the church in Ephesus had a lot of enemies. So, what are we going to say about this? I mean, what a great church this was. I mean, first church of Ephesus. Hardworking, Bible-centered, courageous, filled with folks who could take the heat and never give up. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of a church like that? But, and you know me, there's always a but. There's another part to this story. Because when Christ looks at the church, what does he do? He peeks under the covers. He opens the doors that you don't want to see opened. He lifts up the edges to the underlying reality. Here's my first major point. You'll see it on the screen. In this case, all the good the church was doing... All the good that they were doing was overshadowed by a sad, sad reality. Number one, they'd left their first love. They'd left their first love. They did not love Jesus very much at all. I mean, somehow in the midst of all their godly busyness, in the midst of all of their standing up for the truth, somehow, somewhere, they had left Jesus out of the church. 
Is that possible? That you can be so busy as a church that you leave Jesus out of the equation? Well, the answer to that is obviously. I mean, after all, it happened to the Ephesians. But here's the really sad thing, friends. Jesus knew about it. Jesus knew they didn't love him. And perhaps as John was recording these words, he remembered another time when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, who was embarrassed over betraying Jesus, blurted out what we would have all said if Jesus would ask, Oh, Lord, of course you know I love you. But I can tell you that what happened to Peter could happen to us. I mean, how easy it is for us to substitute knowledge for a warm heart for Jesus. I mean, how quickly sometimes we, even as Christians, justify our behavior with our well-intentioned religiosity. I read a quote that seems to apply equally to the Ephesians to us. It's on the screen here. We can lose Christ by distraction as easily as by denial. I guess if I were going to paraphrase that, we can become so busy that we lose sight of Jesus. I don't know if you ever bothered to read what I write in the messenger or not. So I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to read it all to you, but it, I'm talking about where's the balance in telling people about Jesus. I wrote this. Who is our Savior? Jesus. Who is the hope of the ages? Jesus. Who is the one who died for the sins of the world? Jesus. Who is the focus of the Christian faith? Jesus. Who is the creator of the universe? Jesus. Who is our ultimate judge? Jesus. It is Jesus that we need to tell other people about. Jesus is the focus of our message, not social issues. That's how churches go in the tank. They get so embroiled in social issues that they forget Jesus. But Jesus is not fooled. In verse 5, he gives a prescription. You see it up here. He, he says, it's the three R's. You need to remember how it used to be. You need to repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your direction. You need to repeat those first works. And this strikes me as a, as a sensible prescription because it assumes a very important spiritual truth. And I think this might come up next on the screen. And it says, you don't regain your first love overnight. That's the problem. I mean, ask any couple, any couple who's ever had any marital crisis. A marriage does not go downhill overnight, and a marriage that's been damaged does not go uphill overnight. Healing always takes time. So it is in the spiritual realm. And it begins with a good, good memory. What does Jesus say? Remember, remember the height from which you've fallen. I mean, pondering what you once had is a good thing if it leads you to take some action. I don't know how many times I've had people over the years who've come to see me that were struggling spiritually. And in general, the advice I've given them is get your feet in the right direction. And as long as you're walking in the right direction, sooner or later you're going to walk out of the darkness into the wonderful light of God. But you know, in this age that you and I live in, this age of instant everything, we, don't, we always want quick fixes. 
Pastor, could you pray about it? As if the pastor was presto changeo and everything's going to be okay. You know, we want everything to be made right, and we want it made right yesterday. The words of Jesus tell us that while healing is possible in every situation, it begins in the heart, begins in the mind, and healing sometimes takes a long time. The question is, do you want to be healed? Do you remember that story when Jesus found that guy who had been crippled for 38 years? Remember his question of that guy? He said, do you want to get well? What kind of a dopey question is that? The guy's been crippled for 38 years and somebody says, do you want to get well? What, what, did, what was Jesus asking there? I think Jesus was probing even deeper. What he really wanted to know was, do you want to be changed? Do you want to be changed? Because if you want to be changed, then the answer is yes, a miracle can take place. But if you don't want to ultimately be changed, even Jesus can't help you. We face the same challenge today. Are we so comfortable? Maybe that, that there is. We face the same challenge. Are we so comfortable where we are that we don't want to change? If so, then Jesus has nothing more to say to us. But if we feel the stirring of God within us, then we will do exactly what he prescribes for us in Revelation 2. We will remember our past blessings. We will repent of our self-centered living, and we will redo those first works. Now, if you read that, you, you might ask yourself, what are these first works are? It's interesting Jesus doesn't mention them. Now, I bet you that almost every pastor who's ever preached about this has his own to-do list he'd like to plug in here. In fact, I'm tempted to plug. Okay, go back to your first works. Oh, what were these? Well, let me give them to you, and they'll, they'll trot out something very pious like Bible reading and prayer and worship and meditation and so on. But I have a feeling that the first works are the ones that Jesus wants to teach us. Do you remember when Jesus was asked one time what the greatest commandment was? He summed it up in two sentences. He said, love the Lord with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's enough. Get back to the first works. Do loving actions and loving feelings will follow. Every once in a while when I've had couples together that aren't getting along, I have told them, act as if you love your spouse even if you don't feel like it. Act as if you love your spouse even if you don't feel like it. And I say that because it's easier to act yourself into a new way of feeling than it is to feel your way into a new way of acting. But let's not skip some solemn words here at the end. Jesus said, if you do not repent, if you do not do these things, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, what's that mean? Well, the lampstand symbolizes or represents the approval of God on the church itself. No church, I don't care whether you're Missouri Synod Lutheran or whether you're Catholic or Presbyterian or what kind of Christian church you are, no church, no church has unlimited claim on God's blessings. Any church can have its lampstand removed. Now, I'm going to ask you a question for which I really don't have an answer. That's a terrible question to ask, isn't it? But how would a church know when its lampstand is removed? 
How does a church know when its lampstand is, is removed? How does it know when the favor of God is gone? I don't really know how to answer that question, but I'd suggest to you that the church would probably not even notice. They wouldn't even notice because things wouldn't change. God could take his hands off the church and everything would be business as usual. The preacher would preach. The choir would sing. The lights would be on. The air conditioning would run. The sound system, the visuals would work. Sunday school and adult Bible class would meet. The ushers would still take the offering. And God would not be there. It would be religion without reality. It would be preaching without power. It would be church without Christ. Whatever happened to the church at Ephesus? It ceased to exist. It just disappeared. It was there one day doing great business. It lost sight of Jesus and poof, it was gone. But you know something? Maybe it's better that it's gone than to continue as a church where Jesus is absent. Now, are we listening to what Jesus is saying? Every one of these letters has the same phrase in it. It's this phrase. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do we have ears to hear? Someone one time told me that the Christian faith is a religion of the ears. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Do we hear what God is saying to us, or are we already too distracted by all the other stuff that's going on in this world? God is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Or more personally, are you listening? Now, the message to the church at Ephesus, though, does end with a wonderful promise. I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is, the par- which is in the paradise of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If you do what? If you remember and you reflect and you do, if you, if you love me with all of your heart, if you keep Jesus in your life, you will eat from the tree of life in paradise. I mean, paradise is that personal presence of Jesus in heaven. It's what Jesus promised to that thief on the cross who said, Remember me when you, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. If we are faithful in this life, what does he promise us? A crown of life. If we are faithful in this life, we will know Jesus intimately in the next life. And you know, no one really knows exactly what that means, but it must be a wonderful thing. I mean, just think about it, friends. We will never, ever regret loving the Lord with all of our heart in this life. We will never, ever regret doing that. And i got to tell you something. If we love Him here, we will love Him more there. 
And if we rejoice in Him here, we will rejoice in Him even more up there. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your presence in our life. We thank you even for hard words that challenge us. Words which sometimes make us wonder what we're up to. But Lord, all of us need to remember our first love, to remember you, to keep you first and foremost in our life, to remember the wonderful things that you've done for us through your son Jesus to remember to repent of our sins, to change our heart, to change our mind, and learn to change our direction. And not just want to be healed, but literally want to be changed for time and eternity. Lord, keep us focused. May we have ears to hear. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.